Man, that ought to get us fired up. Amen, church? Wow, praise God for that. 74 baptisms by the grace of God last week. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. Man, that, that, that pumps me up. And, and, you know, as I think about how kind God has been to us, I cannot help but praise him. And as we sang that first song, man, I thought about that. I said, you know, sometimes, I have a friend that says it this way, sometimes we sing those songs that's like slow dancing with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And then there's other times that you just gotta, you gotta dance around and praise. And uh, we, you know, we were able to do that today as we started the service. And with this in mind, it's something just to say, man, praise God for his glorious grace and how kind he has been um, to us. So today we're gonna be in Romans chapter nine, back in the book of Romans. Go ahead and, and turn there, Romans chapter nine. While you're turning there, let me make sure you know that you are invited and encouraged. Please, please, I'm, I'm begging you, I think it's gonna be, an amazing thing for us to celebrate together, to come tonight to members gathering. Now, if you're not a church member, it's okay. You're still invited to come. So at five o'clock, we're gonna have food. Uh, we will feed you. At six o'clock is when we'll start the members gathering. Uh, there'll be a, a great time of praise. We'll talk about some vision. Uh, John Ballard, a young man in our church, we're gonna ordain him. He's going to pastor a church in Virginia. Uh, so just a special, special time that we want you to be a part of. We'll have kids, kids things available at six as well. So if you're worried about your youngins, we've got them squared away. Please come and be a part of our members gathering tonight. Food starting at five o'clock. So I'm gonna see you here, right? All right, cool, awesome, awesome. Um, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna hold you accountable. We're recording this, so I'm listening to everyone. No, anyway, uh, we'd love to have you here tonight for that. Really excited, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. Really excited to share with you what I believe God has, has given us by way of, of vision. So where are we going next? And we will, you know, trickle that out on Sunday mornings as well after tonight, but you're going to hear it in full tonight, and I want you to be there. I want you to be a part of uh, what's going to happen here uh, this evening. All right, so we need to dive right in. We're going to be crunched for time a little bit today, dealing with a weighty passage, but we also have communion um, at the end of, of our time together today, so we want to make sure we have all the time that we need. Let me give you a, a quote just to start off this challenging passage. Uh, Dr. Barber once said this. He said, when you're studying Scripture, keep the light right on your feet and take one step at a time. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I've emphasized this throughout the last month or so. We need to understand the book of Romans in full to understand the sections that we are in. But as we are journeying through section by section, we just need to shine the light on our feet of where we are. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. And we want the word just to speak. We don't want to try to manipulate or change what we think the Word says. We want God's Word to speak to us. Now, in order to understand the book of Romans properly, we need to look at each part along the way. But understand today, the part that we find ourselves in, this section of Romans 9, is heavy on God's sovereign hand, on His electing hand. Uh, chapter 10, for example, speaks heavily towards our personal responsibility to respond to the gospel. We want to see it for what it is, and we don't want to do theological gymnastics to make it say what we think it ought to say. 
Now, for some of you, you're going to be like, man, this seems dense for me today. This seems like a lot for me to digest. For others of you, you may find yourself frustrated with what we read and how we unpack it today. There are others, you're going to say, man, that brought some clarity to me in, a, in an area that I just didn't quite understand. For others, you're just going to be, you're just going to be happy that you uh, made it through, all right? But the fact of life is this. God chooses ordinary people to do incredible things. I think about a movie I watched. I'm a little behind on this. I read the book as well. The book was better than the movie, but uh, War, World War II veteran Louis Zamperini. Some of you know exactly what this is, the story of Unbroken. You may have read the book. You may have seen the movie. He's a former Olympic track star who survived a plane crash in the Pacific Theater, and he spent 47 days drifting on a raft, and then he survived more than two and a half years as a POW as a prisoner of war in three Japanese POW camps. Incredible story of endurance and how God has used him to display a heart of forgiveness that many cannot come to. I think about a, maybe a lighter example of a, an athlete uh, named Spud Webb. How many of you remember Spud Webb? All right, cool. In 1982, Spud Webb won the NBA dunk Contest. Now, this is why it's fascinating. Spud Webb is five foot seven. Pretty cool. Now, you don't have to look far in the Bible to see that there are ordinary people, even messy people in the Bible, that God chose to use for specific purposes. Think about Noah, for example. He, we see in the word, drank too much. And the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin, and Noah, he partook far too much in this and God still used him to build an ark and to ultimately save the world in Genesis 6 through 9. Abraham and Sarah, we're going to talk about them a little bit today. They were an aged couple that God used to build a nation out of. Joseph, he was this entitled teen in many ways, yet God used him to bring freedom to both Egypt and Israel. Moses was a stutterer Yet God used him to be a spokesman of his. Rahab, she was a woman who was known to be a woman of ill repute. Yet God used her to help uh, with diverting the spies that were coming along to, to overtake Jericho. Jonah was running from God, and God eventually used Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to a people that he really didn't want to preach to. Esther, uh, she was adopted. She was an adopted orphan, yet God used her to become a queen and to ultimately save Israel. The list could go on and on and on. And my reasoning for pointing those things out to you today is God does what he chooses to do in the lives of his people. I can't reiterate this enough. Yes, challenging passage, but uh, we're going to take it for what it says, not being intimidated by it at all, because we believe, this is, this is core for us, that all of God's word is profitable. All of God's word is edifying. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. And so as we dive in, keep that at the forefront of your mind. If you're willing and able, please stand in honor of reading the word of God. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. And then we're just going to dive in after we read the text. If you are there, we say amen. amen. If you're excited to be here, we say amen. amen. All right, here we go. Verse 6. Remember, we covered verses 1 through 5 two weeks ago, so if you need to catch up there, make sure that you do. Verse 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Important distinction. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, this is back in Genesis 25, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, a quote from Malachi here, Jacob I loved and Esau, I hate it. May God bless the reading and proclamation of his word today. You may be seated. All right, jumping right in here, verse six, Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. How many of you know today that the word of God does not fail? Now, the word of God here is referring to God's divine promises that he has made to Israel. There are several passages we could look at there, but Jeremiah 31 would be one reference point for us where God made a covenant with his people, and he said, I will be their God, and they will be my people. What Paul is saying is that while they are a chosen nation to be used of God to ultimately bring about the Messiah, groups are made of individuals, and individuals must place their faith in God. There is a theological difference in corporate election and individualized eschatological salvation. We need to keep that in the front of our theological brains as well. It is not as though God's promise has failed. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm in no way suggesting that God's promise to his chosen nation has failed at all. That's not the case. God's word is still intact. It has not failed. As a matter of fact, the problem is not with God's word at all. The problem is with Israel's understanding of what God's word has said. This is so important for us. And I love where it is nestled in this passage because listen, people get really nervous around terms like predestination and election and foreknowledge, but we're not going to get nervous around those terms. Why? Because they're Bible terms and we know God's word does not fail. Let me just throw this out there so that we can hang our hat on this, not as an escape, not as a way to end the conversation, but we must know that there are mysteries of God that are too deep for human understanding. We must know that. We need to, we, we need to cognitively accept that there are some mysteries that we simply can't wrap our human brains around. But know this, God's word does not fail. If we preach the text for what it is, some will say, well, our pastor is this staunch 
Calvinists, and he's trying to Calvinistically take over our church. Let me just encourage you today. Don't be nervous about that. God's word does not fail. And for the 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 theological nerds in here, and I'm not picking, I'm one of you, I'm not a Calvinist, nor am I an Arminian. You know what I try to be, and not that I always do this perfectly, but what I try to be is a Biblicist. What this means is I want to open the Bible, I want to preach the Bible for what it says, knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that we have a responsibility to trust in him. I want to share the gospel in every opportunity that the Spirit of the Lord leads me to so that God would give increase and that he would save. And evidence of that is you have been faithful in doing that. 74 people last week publicly professed Christ as Savior, and we were able to baptize them and represent externally what God has done on the inside. Now, where God's sovereign hand and where our responsibility intersect, I don't know, but we unapologetically study the Bible for what it is, and when those mysteries of God come to the forefront of that conversation, we have to just say, God, we trust in you. We have faith in you because you are God, and that's what makes you God, that you are able to do what you want to do. So one application for us today as we walk through this is we must know that the word of God does not fail. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible. We don't shy away from the word of God because we believe in the authority of the word of God. Now, part B of verse six says this very clearly, just because you were Jewish by birth does not mean that you know the Lord. What does he say here in verse six? Not all of you are who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul has hammered this reality all throughout the book of Romans. I mean, think about where we have been. Paul says, hey, listen, guys, circumcision does not save you, as was a Jewish tradition that was believed. You have to have this in order to be a part of this holy nation. That does not save you. Your bloodline does not determine your relationship with God. Paul hammers those two things. He also hammers this third thing. Your heritage does not determine your heart. Not all who are of Israel are of the true Israel. So here's the application for us today. Our grandmama, she can be a good, godly, God-fearing woman. That does not save us. We must personally respond to Christ. Our daddy could be a preacher man, and he could be a fiery preacher man. He could be the Billy Graham of his day. But just because your daddy is that, it does not mean you have a free ticket to heaven. You must personally know the Lord. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. Just because you're a part of God's promise as a nation doesn't mean that you as an individual knows who Christ is and trusted by faith in him. Now let's look at verses 7 through 9. It gets quite fascinating here as we journey through the text. Now Paul is reaching back here in verse 7 to give uh, an illustration in order to make a point of what he is saying here. And he's pulling back to an Old Testament example. He says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that 
it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. So it's not just your birthright that has gotten you there, not just because you are born into this lineage that is getting you there, but it's those who are the children of the promise. So he's reaching back to the story of Isaac and Ishmael. So Abraham had two sons at this time. He had six more sons after Sarah died, but we're gonna look at these two sons for just a moment. God's covenant was to be established through a promise of a born son to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now here's where it's interesting as well. Back in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham this this just numerous offspring, as many as the stars are to the sky. He promised to bless all nations through Abraham's lineage. And God has, this is an important point, God has always been for the nations. God has always had a plan for the nations. And this promise back in Genesis 12 is for Abraham to say, hey, through your lineage, I'm gonna bless all nations. But Sarah, listen, they didn't have any youngins at this time. And when the promise is made, Sarah's like 80 years old. You can laugh if you want to. Right? Because God has made this promise, and here's Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's 80. She's like, okay, we're going to have this, you know, many nations and like the stars in the sky through our lineage. You know, we're going to see you bless the nations, but I'm 80 years old, man. I have not had any child. So she goes to Abraham and she's like, hey, Abraham, I believe God. I trust God. However, I think he needs a little bit of help. So here's Hagar. Uh, She's a maidservant, this Egyptian woman. And uh, Sarah says, go and have a child with her. Well, Abraham did and they, they had Ishmael. So now they're thinking, well, here's our firstborn. God's going to bless the nations through Ishmael. But that's not what God promised. God said, no, I said that Sarah is going to have a son. And as we read this, we see this in the text, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. By the way, quick pause. Have you ever gotten ahead of God Have you ever tried to help him out? That's exactly what's happening here. And Abraham mistakenly thought that this was a way to speed up what God ultimately wanted to do. But Genesis 17, again, the promise is Sarah, the barren wife, she will have a son and God will establish his covenant through them. Uh, She's now 90 years old and God fulfills his promise and she has a son named Isaac. Now, if you didn't know the Bible was fascinating. You just need to read it. There's some amazing stuff in here. Now, here, here's something that we need to know, salvifically speaking. When I say that, I mean sal- speaking of salvation. This was a miracle of God. This was not of works. This was not anything that man conjured up. It is a miracle. It is a promise of God that he fulfilled. We need to know that salvation is not a result of human works. It's a miracle. It's not based on birth. It's not based on good works. It's not based on anything we can accomplish. It's based on God's gracious intervention by his glorious grace. Now, he says something here in verse 8 that is something we need to lean into for just a moment. He says they are not children of the the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise. Can I just say to you, salvation has always been by grace through faith. This is why Galatians 3, 7, read this, it's on the screen, says this, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is his point. 
You can't depend on the fact that you were born physically into the right line. You can't depend on the fact that you were a descendant of Abraham's lineage. No, you have to be born again. It is by faith. Salvation is by grace through faith, not physical descent, not, not based on anything we have done. It is based on God's grace through faith. So the children of the promise, they are the ones who are counted to be God's descendants, to be sure. But the children of the promise are spiritual descendants not physical descendants you see the difference the promise remains true but it's spiritual descendancy not physical descendancy that is why you can attend church time after time after time and your family can have a heritage here but unless you place your faith in Christ you are not spiritually a part of the family of God a part of the true church you see, God never made salvation completely dependent on one's descendancy from Abraham. As doubtless many Jews living in Paul's time suspected, they thought this is exactly how it happened. If you're part of his lineage, you're good. But Paul's like, no, nah, man, are you a spiritual descendant? So what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned the word of God does not fail. We've also learned that God never promised to save, and this is why his word is true. He never promised to save the entire nation of Israel. God only purposed to save a remnant within Israel, just like the church. Let's make a parallel here. Just like the church in, uh, in our day today. Think about America. People once said, we were once a Christian nation. We were, uh, we were once a Christian nation, so we all love God. We all pursue God. But we know this to be true, that even though we may have identified ourselves as a Christian nation, not all within the nation are saved. Yes, we experience amazing things as a nation. We experience things like the Great Awakening, where God did incredible things. But there are still scores of unconverted people. Not all people, even in a so-called Christian nation, are born again. And so that's the point Paul is making here. Not all of Israel are, are part of the true Israel. Now, the other side of this, and I want you to hear this, the other side of this is even the nations today that are ruled and reigned and dominated by other religions, there are scores of followers of Jesus within them by grace through faith. Why did Drew and Jess, Drew, one of our pastors here, why did they go overseas and serve with the International Mission Board? Because they know this to be true. There are people that need to hear the gospel everywhere. So it's not a corporate election. Individual, we must trust in Christ. Now let's look, look at the last part here, verses 10 through 13. Pa Paul and Isaac but he's given a second illustration from the Bible. Some at that time when they heard this, they may have been tempted to say, well, yeah, that makes sense, man, because Abraham stepped out on Sarah. He, you know, he, he produced this child with this Egyptian woman. And so, yeah, it makes sense that Isaac is the chosen one and not the firstborn. It would usually be the firstborn, but in this case, that makes sense. And so Paul wants to make sure we are not tempted to think that way because some would be. Hey, they're different moms. It was an issue. It makes sense. So he gives another example of Isaac and Rebekah. And he gives an example before the youngins are born. So Isaac, Rebekah, same daddy, same mama. They have they have twins, Jacob and Esau. 
And Paul is giving this example of Jacob and Esau. Looking back in Genesis, we see that God has chosen two nations within Jacob and within Esau. He had a plan before they were even born, before they had time to choose good or bad, meaning that this is not based upon Jacob's goodness. So God is choosing Jacob to be a part of this lineage. It's not based upon how good Jacob is. As a matter of fact, Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was a mama's boy. Jacob was someone who was manipulative. Yet God had a plan, and this plan is not based on Jacob's goodness. There is none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. But God sovereignly, as he has a right to do, chose before the foundation of the world to save his creation. Those whom he foreknew, he entered into a relationship with, and those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, the Bible says he called, he justified, he glorified. God did that, and not one of us deserve it. Jacob didn't deserve this. So let's look through the, the, the kind of a broader lens here for just a moment. God used his people, this is where his promise is true, to ultimately bring the Messiah about through this lineage, to be a blessing to all nations. So if you can follow the family tree with me for a minute, you've got Abraham who had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and through these tribes all are blessed. God used the Messiah to come up through this lineage to bless all nations. Now, through Esau came a tribe known as the Edomites. They hated the Israelites, and God said that they would. And eventually, I find this to be interesting as well, King Herod, who was a ruler over, kind of under the Roman reign, he was a ruler over the Jews. He came up through the Edomite tribe. He is the one that killed John the Baptist. He's the one that beheaded James. He is the one that wanted Jesus dead when he was born. So you see this all taking place. And even though Romans 9 should be seen as individual election, we can see the two nations that are referenced back in Genesis 25 through Jacob and Esau. Can I just make a quick theological point? It's not consistent to argue, as many attempt to do, that Romans 9 refers to, to grouping, that Romans 11 refer, refers to grouping, but yet Romans 10 refers to individuals. That's hermeneutically wrong and that would make Romans 9 through 11 untenable so we know that he is speaking directly to individuals yet there is a corporate vein here that we must notice so the Edomites birthed out of Esau we see God's promise through Jacob but if you look at the corporate election side, now eternal salvation is in view here, not theocratic privilege, not temporal election. But if you look at the corporate side, the emphasis has always been Christ as the head. So wherever we sovereignly land, so think about where we're born, how our life shakes out, wherever we sovereignly land in terms of the nation we're born in, in terms of the religious background we're raised up in, in terms of our ethnicity, our family tradition, we look to Jesus as the head and we, regardless of where we come, from can become children of the promise through spiritual descendancy come on somebody so all means all in terms of the blessing to all nations for all peoples there are no people groups regardless of whether or not they descended from ishmael or not who can be identified as abraham's mistake some try to do that some try to say, oh, there's this whole people group that exists because of Abraham's mistake. If he had just not made that mistake, 
That would not be the case. But let me tell you something. Because they are a part of all the families of the earth that God intended to bless through Jesus. This is why we have a mission to go to all peoples. You're going to hear that tonight, man, so I want you to be here. But that's why we have a mission to go to all peoples. Now, the illustration is given of a lady who went to Charles Spurgeon, and she said this, uh, and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I don't understand how a loving God could say in his word that he hated Esau. Have you ever struggled with that? She struggled with that. Do you know what Spurgeon said? This is what he said. He said, that has never been my problem. My problem has always been, how could God have ever loved Jacob? And his point is this. We have to look at our own lives and say, how, how is it that God could be so kind and so merciful and so good to me? We're not saved for anything good in us. Spurgeon once again says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else I would have, I would have never, never would have chosen, he would never would have chosen me afterwards. His point is this, I, God did something in me to draw me to himself. We plant, we water, God gives the increase. God did something in me to draw me unto himself. This Jacob and Esau quote is directly from Malachi uh, 1, 2, and 3. And Douglas Moo says a better translation is rejected Esau. That there's something in us that's called the flesh that reacts to this in a way that we don't like. Paul's going to pick up later on this. That's why I say don't miss out on Romans. There's so much we're going to talk about. But let me just say this sense of unfairness can well up within us. But in the meantime, before we have time to tease all of that out, let us reverently accept the fact that God is greater than we are. He knows more than we know. There are mysteries too deep for us to understand. And that he is always consistent with his character. And in his word, his, we know his character is God is love. And we know that he has a purpose and he has a plan. If we walk in pride, if we walk around and say, oh, I'm just one of God's elect, I'm, I'm God's chosen son or, or God's chosen daughter, man, hey, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I would say that's good evidence that you have a poor understanding of who God is and what salvation is about. Who am I that God would ever choose to save someone like me? We do know that not everyone is saved. We do know that we are called to go to our community, to our state, to North America, to the nations, to the uttermost, so that all may hear. Not everyone is saved. We know that, but we are called to share the gospel. Once again, I love how Spurgeon puts this. He says, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the back of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts, but since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will, man, and whosoever believes, I know he is one of the elect. Whosoever will. Will you come to him? Will you trust in him? Who am I that, God, you've been kind to me and have offered me salvation in you? This does not lessen our call to live sent lives. It only adds fuel to it. It only revs it up like crazy. So remember, one step at a time, we trust God. We trust his word. And God, I don't understand how our responsibility and your election intersect, but I do know this, I can trust you fully. And that's a mystery of God that may be too deep for me, but I know that my responsibility is to share with all people the goodness of who you are and to pray that they would be saved. And God, to trust that you are mighty to save, to trust that you are more than capable of saving because evidence of that is in my own life. Exhibit A is standing before you that God was kind to me and I want God to be kind to you and to save you. Here's the good news for us. 
we must always have this passionate, zealous heart to share the gospel. If we ever go around saying, yeah, that person's never gonna get saved, must, must not be one of God's leg, that's dangerous, and I think it's faulty, and I think it dishonors the heart of God. I think we know that not everyone is saved, but our responsibility here is to go and tell because God has given us the Great Commission, and he has told us to do that very thing. Weighty text, difficult passage. It only gets more challenging before it gets a little bit easier in Romans 10, but it's all good, and it's gonna shape us and help us have a hearty understanding of God's sovereign hand and our responsibility to respond to him. Today, we wanna close the service by partaking in communion. We do this once a month. It happened to fall on this day with this particular passage, and I, I think that's a powerful thing. The reasoning behind it is because we must humble ourselves and thank God for the blood that was shed, the body that was freely given, so that we could have life in him. If you're here and you've not received a packet of communion, just raise your hand, we'll get those to you. We've got ushers that are available to bring those to you. Communion is for the church, for those who have trusted in Christ. And if you're here and you have trusted in Christ, this is an opportunity for you to say, God, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that you did send Christ to be a blessing to all nations. And God, that I'm a part of that. I'm a recipient of that. God, that you allow me to be forgiven of my sins, to be given new life in you. If you're here and you're a believer and you have some unrepentant sin, some sin that you've not given to the Lord, the Bible says put this aside for a moment and just spend time asking the Lord to forgive you. If you're here and you're not a believer, this is a good opportunity for you to witness the church just thanking God for his gift in Christ that has given us new life. The word says this, we're gonna do this piece by piece, the bread and then the juice. The word says in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the Bible says he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to pray for us. And um, y'all have a song you're doing then? All right, I'm gonna pray for us, then we're gonna sing a little bit together, and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness towards us. God, I pray that you'll help us to receive your word, and Lord, to walk in obedience to you. Lord, to share the truths of the gospel with the world around us. And Lord, to realize that you are, you are God and we are not. And even though there are many things we may not be able to understand in our human understanding, help us to fully lean on you. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.